hopefully. Bearing up. Anyone seen the Bill Bailey uh, routine where with all the Brits, we all go, yeah, not too bad, all things considered. And he goes, have you actually considered all things? And he goes through this whole range about symphonies and the universe, and it just goes on and on. Have you considered all things? It's brilliant. Check it out on YouTube. Wonderful man. Okay, Luke chapter 9. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read straight away. John reintroduces us to our series after a few weeks off over Christmas and New Year. We're going through Luke since about a year ago, probably. I'm trying to remember when we started. <clears throat> Something like that, maybe before. We are now at Luke chapter 9, verse 43. And we're going to read through to verse 50. There we go. Luke 9, verse 43. It's the second part of verse 43 where you see a section in your Bibles, probably. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Let me just pray, just briefly. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us today as much as back then. This is relevant, this is alive. Your word is living. Your word discerns between spirit and flesh, and we trust that this morning. So Lord, will you come and speak to us through your word? Lord, I'm just the preacher, Lord, but this is your, your word, <laughs> living out loud. Let it not be mine. And may, by Holy Spirit, may we hear your heart for us this morning and what you want us to step into, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, it feels like a bit of a disparate kind of bunch of verses. There's kind of three things happening. Um, but there is a common theme, a common thread amongst them all. Just the bare bones of what we just read, literally. First of all, Jesus is telling the disciples that he's going, to be, he's going to be taken. He's going to be handed over, delivered over into the, into the hands of men. And they don't understand, and they're not quite there to kind of put two and two together yet. But um, immediately after that, they then start arguing, arguing amongst themselves about who's the best one. They're jostling for position inside their circle. Oh, oh, oh me, me, me. I followed him first. No, yeah, but I follow him best. Oh, yeah, but I follow him the quickest. They're all just having I mean, to jostle for position. It's like this inner circle kind of power grab, if you like. I'm closer to Jesus than you are, all this kind of stuff. But then immediately, after Jesus gently berates them, he does it very lovingly, he tells them off. But then immediately, they, and particularly John here, they start comparing themselves to other people outside the circle as well. They've been comparing themselves to each other, and then they're comparing to themselves to others outside their circle. It's like, here, yeah, Jesus, that man over there, he's doing our thing. He's casting out demons in your name. That's our thing. And again, Jesus has to gently 
berate them. And effectively, what he's saying is going, it's not your thing, actually, it's my thing. And the fact that they're doing it in my name is a good thing. Just stop what you're doing. Now, to all of us, reading all that from a distance of 2,000 years, and it's easy just to read about what these silly disciples were up to, with the benefit of hindsight, it's easy for us to know what Jesus was actually hinting at about being handed over into the hands of men, etc., and then them jostling for position within their circle and against others outside the circle as well. It all seems a bit petty. It all seems a bit childish, a bit pathetic, really. But I've got to be honest with myself. If I or we had been amongst them at the time, uh, we may not have been much different. And as we're going to explore over the next 20, 25 minutes or so, there is a broad lesson here between these three segments of Jesus telling them what's coming up later for him them jostling for position within the circle and then outside the circle as well. There is a lesson here, some of it quite obvious, but some of it a bit more below the surface. We're going to look at the subject of humility. We're just going to look at the subject of humility and how that applies within the church, but how it also applies outside the church, our response, our relationship to those outside the church as well. And then we're going to return to the early part, the first part of this passage, uh, to see the gospel on display with that theme still at work. So, first of all, when we say the word humility, what do we mean by the word humility? Let's just understand what the Bible means when it talks about this subject. Because dictionary definitions, Oxford, Cambridge Dictionary, look it up online, secular dictionary definitions of the word humility are all about having a low self-regard or having a, a sense of unworthiness. There's a common theme and a common language there. Now, that's because, rightly so, it's been considered on a level playing field of human versus human. Um, it's, about, it's a valued thing to do, but it also carries an essence, therefore, of putting yourself down, having a sense of low self-regard or a sense of unworthiness. Um, it's, it's kind of a bit like, don't big yourself up, don't think too highly of yourself, drop it down a couple of notches, all that kind of stuff. It's that kind of feel. And there is value in that. There is some truth in that. Paul himself, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So Paul is effectively saying the same kind of thing. But then he continues in the same breath, but, to, but instead to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So what he's saying, the measure of faith you have, the measure of understanding of who God is and who you are now, the more we understand the human condition and God's rescue plan over that, and therefore where we stand now as his people, we can therefore have a more rounded understanding of our place in this world. And so it's not just about, well, think yourself as a little bit more rubbish than you'd prefer, and then you can't go wrong. It's not about pushing yourself down. It's different. Because that standard secular definition of humility is missing an important element. Because it remains with this downward focus, this kind of shrinkage of yourself, if you like. It's about putting yourself down. Whereas the biblical sense would tweak that a little. In that while it's certainly about not considering yourself to be above your station, as Paul has literally said in Romans 12, but it's less about ensuring you place yourself lower down the rankings. It's more about placing ourselves in the context of a merciful God and placing him and others above ourselves goes the other way. So it's not so much about putting ourselves down as it is about raising God and raising others. And so Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. What was going on amongst the disciples in this passage? Rivalry. 
And Paul says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So it's not about putting yourself down as much as it is about considering God more highly and others more highly. It's the other way around. Rick Warren, the uh, Californian megachurch pastor, very wise, very solid guy, uh, he once said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And yet today, in today's passage in Luke 9, we find the disciples doing the exact opposite of that, don't we? I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. Because while the disciples here, they're getting quite haughty between themselves. I'm greater. They're also then immediately getting uppity about people outside the circle as well. He's doing Jesus things. That's our shtick, not his. That belongs to us. And Jesus' response is that these others are doing good in his name. They're promoting and preaching the kingdom. And therefore, they're also church. They're also his people. And so there's a lesson here for, about, for us about our relationship with other churches outside of our immediate family as well. And so with that in mind, we're going to find this biblical lesson here for ourselves about humility. We're going to look at humility within the local church, the immediate family, but we're also going to look at humility in action within the global church as well. And therefore, there's implications for us about our relationship to those in the world outside the church also, across mankind. So first of all, let's look at humility within the local church. When they're jostling for position and asking, working out who's greater than the next. This story also appears in Matthew and it appears in the Gospel of Mark as well. And in Mark 9, verse 33, we see Jesus. He knows they're whispering about this stuff, about who's greatest. And Jesus goes, what were you discussing? He knows exactly what, what's, in the, what's in their hearts. So the Bible's just told us. But he says in Mark 9, he goes, what are you discussing? And they keep silent. They don't answer. Because they know full well they're on dodgy ground. They know what they're doing. So Jesus, what he does, rather than just telling them to stop it, he actually uses a child. He draws a child in their midst to him to illustrate his point. Now, why not just tell them off? Why focus on a child amongst them? There's a reason why he's done it, isn't there? So Mark chapter 9, verse 36 tells us that this child is small enough for him to take this child in his arms. This is a very young child, small enough for him to pick up. And children in the Roman world, they could often be exploited or, or ignored at the very least. But in the Hebrew culture, it was almost quite unique at the time, they were considered gifts from God. Children are gifts, not something to be ignored or put to one side until they become adults. Children are gifts from God. And while children are far from innocent themselves, any parent here will accept their beloved little ones, their little angels are not quite perfect. Anybody willing to admit that uh, one hand, I'm not going to say who, but one hand went up very quick there. But our children are brilliant and we love them and they are gifts from God. But they, like us, without his help, are broken. No child is innocent. But compared to adults, they are dependent, aren't they? Children are dependent. And therefore children are in need in order to survive and thrive. They're dependent on adults. They're at the mercy of those kind of in power and in influence, like us, the parents. And so Jesus says, in Mark's telling of this passage, he says, whoever humbles himself as this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying, you're acting like you're the ones with the power and, you're, and the ones with the lack of need. I'm greater. No, I'm greater. He said, my kingdom is not about human power not about survival of the fittest, if you like. He's saying my kingdom is about human weakness 
and about a dependence on Father God himself. It's about your need, not your know-how. It's not about your skills and your strength and your knowledge. It just says, be childlike and be dependent on your heavenly Father, as much in need for his strength and his protection and his provision as the rest of your brothers and sisters are. It puts you all on a level playing field. And so, as we extend this main principle, this issue at stake, this jostling for position within the family, we see this need for a heart posture that honours God and therefore then unlocks relationships with each other and the ability to thrive side by side. Because then instead of striving to be noticed or striving to get a claim to earn more of man's attention or even trying to earn more of God's attention, it doesn't work like that. Instead, our hearts need to be instead striving to promote one another and not ourselves, raising others. Sometimes it's just stepping back and letting other people get the credit, get the glory, for example. Or letting other people recognise for what they are rather than trying to make sure you get recognised for what, what you've done or who you are. It's being okay with that. In God's eyes, I'm loved. I don't need any more. There's a lovely story from, oh, it's decades ago now, but there was a big um, reception honouring a musician, um, Sir Robert Mayer. Uh, it was his 100th birthday, and there was a big um, upper-class gathering. And uh, there was an elderly British socialite there called Lady Diana Cooper. It's a true, true story. Lady Diana Cooper. She didn't have great eyesight. And she was at this function for Sir Robert Mayer for his 100th birthday. Lots of dignitaries there. And she's having a lovely time and chatting to people. She gets chatting to this really friendly lady who's just lovely, who knows her really well. And because of her eyesight, she doesn't recognise her. And she's just like, I can't work out who she is, but she knows me. And they're having a lovely chat. And as, after a while, embarrassingly, as Lady Diana Cooper kind of steps forward a bit more and she recognises the diamonds that this lady is wearing, she's like, Queen Elizabeth, <laughs> I'm talking to the Queen. And she says, I'm so sorry, ma'am. It's ma'am, not ma'am, isn't it? I'm sorry, sorry, ma'am. So sorry, uh, Your Highness, your, your Majesty. I'm so sorry I didn't recognise you. You didn't have your crown on. I didn't pick up who you were. And the Queen actually said, I decided not to wear anything like that today because it's Sir Robert's day. And I wanted him to get the attention. I was happy just to blend in with the crowd. That's Queen Elizabeth. She, as a woman in this land who deserves all the honour and respect and acclaim for who she is, she chose to withdraw for Sir Robert's sake because it was his party. Just a lovely notion of, despite what she could have, had, could have um, claimed or had the right to, she decided just to let that slide for the sake of someone else, to raise them up. She wasn't so much putting herself down as she was just letting him have his moment. She didn't want to swamp his moment and take the attention for herself. She wasn't, she wasn't thinking less of herself, but she was thinking of herself less. So do we see this heart posture active in the church today? Well, I hope so, but there are some pitfalls for human tendencies uh, uh, to go the other way in the local church. For example, it can be easy to feel like we're getting missed out for attention uh, in church. When, um, um, for example, while, while the church family can be at fault in um, failing to provide care and support for individuals uh, when they need it, and we'll put our hands up to that. We don't always get that right. What I'm talking about here is when we're wanting to be considered more highly or to be more recognised for things we do, especially when others are instead of us. Well, what about me? You know, I've had people, when I've publicly thanked someone for a job they've done or a role, that, a role they, they fulfil in the church, and I publicly thank them, 
Sometimes I've had someone come up to me and go, well, I did that once, you didn't thank me. It's like, well, okay, maybe, but you're also missing the point. Suddenly there's a heart prick there that isn't healthy. And having this attitude can then hamper our abilities to, and, and opportunities to do amazing stuff together when rivalry or feeling snubbed gets put aside. Uh, Ronald Reagan, the former US president, he knew this, and he really helpfully he said, there is no limit to the amount of good, good you can do if you don't mind who gets the credit. It's the same thing. There is no limit to the amount of good you can do if you don't mind who gets the credit. And Paul, therefore, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So, just got to ask myself, ask ourselves, does my heart writhe when someone else is openly thanked instead of me? And if so, why is that? Or to put it another way, do I feel joy when others are honoured? Good question to ask, isn't it? Or another example, it can be easy to only want the front of house roles in church rather than the behind the scenes ones. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I can't think of anything worse going up the front. That's fair. Some of, you, some of you can't stand it, and that's right. It's fine. But others of you may be aware in your heart there's a tendency to think, well, I'd love to be asked to preach. I'd love to be asked to lead a meeting. Or I'd love to be asked to head up a team or something. We just sometimes we need to ask ourselves, why? Now, someone some years back, when he heard that I'd been invited again to preach at another church, he went, I'll give my right hand to preach at somewhere else, to be invited somewhere else and go and preach to another crowd. And my question was like, why do you want that? Very interesting, uh, very interesting heart posture that's worth exploring sometimes. We just, again, we just need to ask ourselves, if you seek that kind of acclaim, do you? And if so, why? Or are you genuinely happy to serve in obscurity and let God worry about the recognition? Good question to ask. As some examples about humility at work within the family. Um, but there's also, we need to extend it to humility across the global church, between us and other local churches and other streams and so on. Because the disciples, straight after this, um, John in particular in this passage, they then start getting upset about others outside of their inner circle performing good works, miracles none, nonetheless, demons being cast out in Jesus' name. And Jesus, again, is quick to reprimand him. He said, well, they're on our side, so what exactly are you jealous of? And again, here's an opportunity for us to take a heart check and just ask ourselves, what do we really think about other expressions of Christianity and why do we think that? Other local churches, other streams, other movements, other denominations, we just need to make sure, is my heart humble about that or do I shake my head at them because they do things differently? Because it can be easy to look at other churches who express their worship or even theology differently and we can shake our heads and think, well, thank goodness we've got it right here at Beacon. And in fact, most times, most times we do still have a lot to learn from them. And we may not always be right. And there's a reason why blind spots are called blind spots, because you can't see them. That's why, for example, we've introduced, you might have noticed over the past couple of years, um, on our videos over Zoom and sometimes here on a Sunday morning, we've, we've had the creeds up where the ancient statements of the Christian faith, what we stand for. We believe in God the Father, Jesus the Son, Holy Spirit. We believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection. Sometimes we stand and recite these together. Now, 
we, we, we can get ourselves into the frame of mind where we're a lively, charismatic, very organic, free-flowing, happy-clappy church. We don't do that formal stuff. And it's quite, that's, that's a bad attitude to have. We've got a lot to learn from other expressions of worship. And we've introduced these creeds, or sometimes we've recited a psalm, a call-and-response psalm, that other expressions are more likely to do. And we need to learn from them. There's value in standing up and proclaiming what we believe in together. And even when we returned to Vibe last summer and we had to be socially distanced and, and, we, and we, we couldn't have mixing, it was limited who could be up the front, so our services were very much more front-led than they ever used to be and therefore they became quite scripted. But what they did, while they were a more formal type of worship than we'd have been used to or even have chosen to do beforehand, what they did was took us on a journey during that morning that we'd never have experienced if we'd done it more, more as a free-for-all. Sometimes we can look at other expressions of, of our faith and shake our heads, well, thank goodness we've got it right. We haven't. We've got to be very careful. We need to be humble enough to learn from each other. Now, sometimes there are biblical interpretations, there are worked out values that are erroneous and we need to be confident to explore why we believe what we believe but also listen to other points of view in order to be sure and again, we need to do that humbly. There are biblical values that we would consider are written in blood. Closed hand, we're not letting go. The virgin birth, the resurrection, the, even the charismatic, the, yeah, the gifts of healing and contributions of, of uh, prophecy and words of knowledge. We believe that the gifts of the Spirit are active for today. That is who we are as a church. We believe that and other churches don't. And we're happy to agree to disagree, but that is what we stand for because we believe that is true. We would keep, consider that a closed hand issue. But some aspects of leadership and human sexuality in that, other churches would disagree. This is what we believe in. But then there are others that are not written in blood, that are not so black and white, they're written in pencil, if you like, that, that yeah, musical styles, sermon lengths, how we do small group community and, and so on and so forth, that we're happy to sometimes change if we need to. We're not so close-handed about that kind of stuff. But sometimes when we see others who are worshipping differently, we need to take a breath and we need to be sure God's not teaching us something before we get on our high horse. Oh, look at them doing that differently. Actually, maybe there's something we can learn. And some, sometimes it's just different. And that's it. But then, of course, this also translates not just to how we respond to those in the church outside of our local family, but also mankind in general, outside of the church. Um, because Paul is quick, for example, in these letters to the churches in Ephesus and in Corinth, he reminds them of their state before they met with Christ. You were lost in sin. You were children of the devil. He lists whole, whole, uh, lists of sinful behaviour and goes, this was you once. This was you once. It's a helpful reminder that it's only by God's grace any of us have had our eyes open to him in the first place. You see, Jesus tells us not to judge others, but instead get that plank out of our own eye long before we even consider pointing out a splinter in someone else's, doesn't he? And yet passages like 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul is saying to the church, there's a man sleeping with his stepmom, get him out. Sometimes there's a place to make a judgment call in order for the church to be healthy, because sin is abounding there and it's festering. So therefore, can we judge or can't we judge? Depends what you mean by that word. See, the difference is, judging someone is, think, is, is about thinking too highly of ourselves, about assuming we're immune to a particular 
uh, sin or that particular kind of choice, lifestyle choice or whatever, we consider we're better than someone else. That's judging someone. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Don't do that. You've got a plank in your own eye. While discernment is making a humble judgment call on where we stand before God and where others therefore stand, which is different. And sometimes we do need to be honest about when, for example, sin is abounding and we need to take action for the health of the church rather than, no, we just need to love them, don't worry about it, God loves them. No, sometimes you need to take action for the sake of holiness and purity. See, judgment is very different to making a judgment call. Judgment is thinking very highly of yourself, making a judgment call humbly before God. Sometimes action needs to be taken for the glory of his name. And so, therefore, and that applies to how we view people outside the church. We're surrounded by a world that swims in another direction, aren't we? That's just, just, just the, the truth. They're not living for Christ. And therefore, many people around us hold vastly different values to us and worldviews to us. And by the grace of God, we're saved. And by the grace of God, they might be too one day. And we are not especially clever enough to have found Jesus for ourselves and other people are slow on the uptake. That's not how it works. Without his intervention, you or I would otherwise be in exactly the same boat as everybody else. By his grace we're saved. There's nothing we've brought to the table. So we need to be very careful when we shake our heads at how other people outside the church live their lives. Is what I'm saying. We need to be very humble about that. We need to ensure that our words and our actions are welcoming and loving. But also, we also need to be free and bold enough to speak the truth for which we stand but not to expect other people to live the same way if they haven't met with Jesus yet. There are lifestyle choices around us that we cannot expect people to change when they're living for something else entirely. You can't impose Christianity on others. That that would just be surface change, wouldn't it? Otherwise, we're simply setting up rules for people to abide by without heart change at the centre of it. It doesn't work. And therefore, that goes completely against the good news that we're supposed to be preaching in the first place. It's about Jesus doing the saving, not, not lifestyle choices. It's about inside out, not outside in. So, those are some helpful questions about humility within the local family, within the global church, and our response to mankind in general. For the sake of time, I just have to leave it there. But we need to ensure we do ask these questions of ourselves. Where is my heart within this? And we need to take note and maybe take action. Because the trouble is, after this event that we've just read in Luke 9, the disciples don't learn their lesson. Because at the Last Supper, they do it again. Luke chapter 22, 13 chapters later, they do it all over again. At the Last Supper, where am I? Lost my page, here we are. Verse, Luke chapter 22, verse 24. This is the last supper before Jesus is about to be handed over into the hands of men, as he had already told them in Luke 9. He's about to be arrested, about to suffer greatly, about to die on a cross for mankind. And that Thursday evening, it says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Here they go again. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. There's that childlike attitude again. And the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? 
but I'm among you as the one who serves. Jesus says to them, worldly leadership is about lording it over. Worldly greatness is about being above. But then he lands on his own posture. I'm, even I, God himself, am one who serves. And in fact, John 13 tells us that just before this meal, Jesus had washed their feet. God himself washed the disciples' feet. See, true greatness is not defined by ranking or having a great CV, but it's about your heart and having a faithful, quiet service. And Jesus himself, God himself, he lived that out loud very much, even unto death. Which then brings us back to how today's passage began. As Jesus had said in Luke 9, he'd said, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. See, this is the last moment in Galilee, in the north of the country, before Jesus makes his journey south towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. And literally in the next verse, in the next passage that we're going to hear from next week, it says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew exactly what was coming. He knew why he'd come. And he knew that would involve awful tribulation and suffering and death. Holy God himself carrying the very full weight of our sin upon his shoulders. He knew he was heading towards that. And he chose to. God himself voluntarily handing himself over to suffer at the hands of his own creation in order to bring a family home to heaven. There's humility. There's greatness. I'm sure many of you will be familiar with The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. The C.S. Lewis series starts with The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And uh, in there, Aslan represents Jesus. He literally does. That's not just a metaphor. He's meant to represent Christ himself. And Aslan, the great creating lion. Uh, It's great and powerful and beautiful and loving and also flipping scary. There's that whole wonderful mix in him, in Aslan, the lion. And yet, for the sake of the children, for the sake of Edmund, is it Edmund? I can't remember the names of the kids. Um, he willingly gives himself up as a complete sacrifice on that stone altar that the kids might be saved, forgiven and rescued. And on that stone altar, when the, when the, 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 is it the two girls are like looking through the bushes and they see Aslan bound on that altar, dead. His whole beautiful mane has been shorn off. And there's Aslan, he's looking weak and pitiful. And in that moment, very much, he comes alive again, but in that moment, very much dead for the sake of others. See, there's humility and there's self-sacrifice and there's, there, there, that's not seeking recognition and claim and claiming to be greater. It's just giving of yourself. It wasn't thinking less of himself, but it was thinking of himself less. And that's exactly what our Jesus has done for us. Creator God himself. Let's finish on that famous passage in Philippians chapter 2. Where I read from verse uh, 3 earlier, where Paul said, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Well, he carries on. And he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that means it's a thing that he already has, but he's not willing to take advantage of it. He's willing to give up the benefit that gave him. But it continues, verse 7, But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Here's our great Lord, one who deserves and will one day fully receive every knee bowing before him. And he's living out loud exactly what he's asking of us, to lay our sense of worth aside and consider others first. He gave of his life in order to conquer sin, death and the devil. And he didn't stay dead, he rose again in order that we too might truly live. And in light of that jaw-dropping mercy, I just need to ask myself, how much am I willing to think of myself less in order that he might get the acclaim and others might flourish? Let me just pray for us. Jesus, we celebrate you as the great, beautiful, awesome, jaw-dropping king who chose to give of himself to come and serve. You humbled yourself to death, even death on a cross, that we might live. Lord, help us as your people to live out that heart aloud. Speak to each one of us if there's something we need to deal with, if we need to do some business with you, if we've been seeking the wrong things, if we've been seeking the acclaim, if we've been maybe secretly, quietly in our own hearts, let alone out loud, jostling for position with others. Lord, will you confront us and speak to us and minister to us? Help us to big one another up. Help us to spur one another on. Help us to honour you in our conduct, in our speech, in our love for one another. Help us to love and learn from others outside of Beacon as well. Lord, we just want to... We need your help to become more like you. Holy Spirit, will you just stir something fresh in us? new wave of humility in our hearts in, a, in this church that we can, we can shine ever more for you and ever more like you. The eyes will be open to your glories. That people will stand up and take notice, not of us, but of you. As we live you out loud with your help. In your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.